Halito, and welcome to Native Chalk Talk, a podcast by Natives for all. Here, we're keeping our Native ancestors' stories and history alive, while also sharing with you our Native cultures, traditions, and more. I'm Rachel Youngman, a Choctaw originally from Anadarko, Oklahoma. I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And stay tuned for the end of each episode, where we'll talk about some great ways to support Native causes and or Native-owned businesses. Let's get started. But first, a word from our sponsor. Potential is everywhere in the Choctaw people. It's in our schools and students. It's in our small businesses and entrepreneurs. Potential is in our lifestyle and health. It's in our culture and heritage. Passion and commitment is in our blood. Ingenuity and economy are a tradition. And the Chutla Foundation was founded for this potential cultivate minds and hearts, to stimulate ideas and passions, to extend lives and improve health through education, and to preserve and promote the power of our past. The Chata Foundation, meeting the potential of the Choctaw people. You've most likely heard of the Trail of Tears in which during the removal of the 1800s, the government ripped 60,000 Native Americans from their homelands and placed them into Indian Territory, now Oklahoma. But little is known among most about the unsung heroes, the Choctaw Ponies. For my tribe, the Choctaw, over 2,000 died along this journey of death, and countless amounts of their horses died too. Some brought their horses along the Choctaw Ponies, but just like their humans, not all would survive. These creatures were loyal to their owners, yet despite their strength and beauty, their bodies could only carry them so far. Whether arriving in Indian territory with their owners on their backs or walking alongside them or having given their bodies back to Mother Earth along the way, these ponies were such unsung heroes. And I am here today in Antlers, Oklahoma with my Choctaw guest, Francine Lockbray, who got to experience the joy of caring for some of the remaining surviving lineage of the very horses who walked this trail of tears so long ago. Francine, I am feeling both honored and nostalgic to have this conversation with you today. Yakoki for your time and expertise. Uh, Rachel, thank you, and I'm honored to be asked to do this. Wonderful. It's kind of like uh, I've been looking forward to this day for a while, <laughs> so this is a lot of fun. I recall meeting you a few years back, but but just virtually yeah. at the time, mm -hmm. and I was researching about the white horse my great-grandmother, also Choctaw, used to ride to get away for a short time from her guardian. He had bought her at age three to take over her Indian land allotments and to keep her as a servant. You were kind enough back then to try to find out if that was a Choctaw pony, but we never quite figured it out, but I was grateful for your help though. And now I'm thrilled to learn about your history with the Choctaw ponies, as well as to dig into the interesting story of your Choctaw family. So why don't you tell me about how you first came into working with these beautiful creatures? Well, it's kind of a long, convoluted story. Go for it. We're ready. <laughs> I had been told since I was a child that our family had had these special horses that were smaller. Mm -hmm. 
They were smaller horses. So in 1999, a cousin died in McAllister, and I took over taking care of her archives and kind of mother henning her small museum and archives. So I would come down regularly, and every time I came down, I'd take a drive somewhere, and I was always looking for these ponies. Yeah, you know, if yeah. I saw smaller horses, I thought, oh, that must be them, that must be them. Yeah. You know, but then one day I did answer a query in the Biskinic from Monique Schaefer out east. And the Biskinic is the Choctaw paper that, that we were seeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she was looking for whoever was descended from six family. The Carters, the Selfs, the Brains, the Helms, the Locks, and I think there's one other. And, of course, I'm descended from the Locke family, my Great-grandfather Victor Locke married Susan McKinney, and her our Choctaw lineage comes from her. Okay. Her father was Thompson McKinney, and grandfather was John McKinney. And that I'll speak about him in a minute. Okay. So anyways, I responded. It turned out I was the only one res- who responded to her. <laughs> yeah, go figure that wow. one. And um, we started carrying on a conversation by email. And she said that she was looking on behalf of Bryant Rickman, who had a herd of horses down here. Subsequently, I think it was April of 2009, my sister came down to join me, and I took her on one of my road trips and made an appointment to meet him. Mm -hmm. And so we went out to his home in Soper and met him, and that was kind of how I got started because he now has, I think, about 500 um, Spanish Mustangs and had set aside a group that he felt was pure Choctaw. Now that they were descended from Choctaw families, had come down through. And one of those families that he had traced the horses through the man who took care of them before him was the Locke family. Wow. Yeah, he had a stallion, Scotty, who was known to have come down through the years mm-hmm. from the locks. So at the time, the lumber company was forcing horses off the mountain, and he needed quite a bit of help, so I started a, helped start a nonprofit, and we raised for a number of years, raised funds to help support the horses. Eventually, we had to quit because my husband got sick, he got cancer, and, Hmm. you know, we just aged and we couldn't do the handling of the horses anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to be able to really move safely when you're around horses. Okay. Right. Not that these are hard to move around, it's just that you always have to remember Mm -hmm. that they don't think like a human being. True. So, we aren't doing that now. Now we're doing more of this quiet stuff research. We're doing, but during that time, I started doing a lot of research on my family. Well, I've been doing research on my family for years and years, but added the horse element. So I learned a lot about where the horses had come from, what they had been doing, their Trail of Tears journey, and then how they came to be here. And one story I will tell. John McKinney, whom I mentioned before, mm-hmm. was my great-great-great-grandfather, and he owned a stand in Robinson Road in Mississippi, just 10 miles from the the main house or off, mm-hmm. office, the offices, at near, Col- I think it's Columbia, Mississippi. Okay. And he was a, considered a captain, which is when the people moved, they made a captain out of these groups. And it usually was a town. 
town or neighborhood, someone was in charge of all those people in that neighborhood, we could say. Mm -hmm. And he was one of those. He was known as Captain John McKinney. I found in my research that there was a letter from him to the government asking, the, according to the Treaty of Dancing Rabbit Creek, they were to sell all their stock and take very little with them. And he had written the government and said, me and my people are not able to sell it for anything. Nobody wants to pay us for these horses and this cattle. So can we take them? Mm -hmm. So I always feel like he really had a, a role in getting the horses to go with Thank them. goodness. Too. Yeah, to go with them. So they brought the horses and subsequently I found, well, a friend had sent me bits of a journal kept by a soldier whose responsibility, it turned out, was to move the horses. What? Lieutenant wow. Van Horn. Yeah. I did get the book out. The whole journal is in. There's an encyclopedia of the Trail of Tears by Daniel Littlefield. And I subsequently did do a story in Sarah Sawyer's Touch My Tears. Oh, I love her writing. Yeah, and in there is the story of Okchako, and it's taken from that journal. It's the story of a young horse who's making that Trail of Tears journal Aww. and what he encounters. And it was really kind of neat because it was my sister who suggested that we put it in his words, in the horse's words. Oh, I love words, that. As an elder speaking to the younger horses and telling them their heritage. But that was, you know, to me, that was very exciting. And then along comes Scotty and my brother in Texas. One of my brothers does have Scotty. And then we subsequently had a group of horses, mainly from the Rickman herd, but they were horses that were eventually descended. Scotty bred <laughs> perfectly. <Yeah. laughs> and three of the horses... You'll see at Jones Academy. Oh, right. Are going out of Scotty. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay, so yeah. those are Scotty descendants. Yeah, Scott, the mother oh. and two young mares. So ask Patrick. Okay, them. absolutely. Yeah, and they're Scotty descendants. But um, and what does Oak Choco mean, if you don't mind my asking? Blue. Blue. Okay. He was a blue roan. Okay. Yeah, beautiful. Oh. And what and does roan mean? Roan is kind of their changing color. I think mm. it's from the, I'm not the expert on this, but I think it's from the bottom up, like their bellies will be changing and then it goes slowly. Oh, um, it's like an ombre. Babe, in the picture I showed you, is mm -hmm. a roan. Yeah. Okay, the He's brown, the yeah. brown one. Okay, oh, yeah. that's so exciting. So change. But I apologize to any horse people that know better than that. <laughs> Hey, you're, you know, my sisters and I, we, we had horses growing up, but it was nothing like, you know, uh -huh. we, we have no idea what their lineage they were from. So you mentioned that they went on this journey of the Trail of Tears. I uh -huh. do encourage anyone to listen to the story of Ochako, which I'm yes. also going to go uh -huh. look up after this. But do you know anything about that story of the Trail of Tears when they were on the trail and then they arrived in Indian Territory? Is there any more about that that you oh, know of? yeah. It was difficult, very difficult on the trail because they had trouble finding food for mm. the horses. And some people along the way provided it, some didn't. They had swamps to go through, and they called it fodder. And we have some copies of receipts. Uh, there was a point where someone was going to send them all across at one time on a 
barge, but that didn't take place, so they mainly had to swim across. Hmm. And over 2,000 died on the trip. The money value of the horses that they lost at the Trail of Tears was $80,000. Oh, my Lord. And was that yesterday's money or today's money? Yesterday's money. Whoa. So that's when you think about what it would be. It's so unjust. It's just, yeah. So wrong. So wrong. And then when they got here, what they were promised was never really came through. And there was a drop that came through and then illness. It was just a constant struggle, you know, just a real struggle. Well, and I think a lot of people don't realize is uh, there were a lot of Choctaws in Mississippi that were actually very prominent, doing very well. They had big farms. They had horses and chickens. And Mm -hmm. it'd just be like literally someone coming into your house today and saying, you're no good. We're going to move you somewhere else. You have no idea what you're walking into. Mm -hmm. And by the way, you have to walk there. In 1835, the Choctaws made a claim against the government. And I thought it would be a document of everything. And it's 99% of the document is lost horses. Wow, really? Yeah, it's over 2,300 lost horses. And what's wonderful about the document is it names the person who owned the horses, how many horses they lost, and the value of the horses. And I think at that time they were valuing a horse at like $60. And isn't there some kind of initiative right now to try to... Uh, reclaim some of that loss for the tribe? There has been for ever since. Oh, yeah. yeah. (laughs) It's called the net proceeds. And uh, what it is is descendants of people who moved on the Trail of Tears uh, were filing to get paid back for what they were owed, literally Mm -hmm. owed, for leaving their properties and their stock and all. To me, what they're most important for the net proceeds is it lists, like in my family, John McKinney's first wife. They had four children, three daughters and a son, and I knew that, but he took a second wife. Okay. Which, as Thompson said, he kept a journal. So in a polygamous way, he had two wives? Yeah, well, that was a common thing with Choctaws at the time, was to have a second wife. Well, she was a Renaissance woman, and she wasn't going to have it. So, <laughs> so she packed up her four children and she got out of there and went west to Yellowbusha and she remarried a man by the name of Isaac Nelson. Thompson McKinney, her son by John McKinney, did a journal. And in the 1850s, he wrote this journal and he tells this story, but he doesn't name anybody, not even his father, his mother, his sisters, anybody except for his stepfather, who he doesn't really care for because he's not his real father. (laughs) (laughs) But thank God for the journal, though, because don't we all wish we had an ancestor who kept a journal? It's wonderful because it's been a mainstay for research. Through it, we found out his father had eventually become chief of the Mush District, 1838 to 1842. We find out through the net proceeds files we never knew her name, and I always I had references to an Ishtamona or a Stamona, but wasn't sure. And sure enough, in the net proceeds, why they're worth researching is there she is, and um, names her children nice. plus her children's spouses, and in one part her grandchildren. 
So you have it all kind of laid out. For people researching their Native American side of their family, we all know those little nuggets make all the difference. Well, we had finally found an obituary for her written by a son from her second marriage, which really made that link solid. Okay. The Nelsons here were descended from her second marriage, but he never named her. And that's a Choctaw. He just called her Mother Nelson. (laughs) <laughs> so we had Mother Nelson, and I thought Ishtamona or Stamona, and then we run into Betsy Nelson, and then we do, takes us back with John McKinney to Stamona. She was known as shortened Stamona. So we okay. finally have, Finally, know, and it's yeah. nice when we can honor those yeah. who came before us by mm-hmm. putting a name in there, or just when you see a photo or mm-hmm. something like that, that makes us go, okay, you're still here. We haven't forgotten yeah. you. Mm-hmm. So my next thing is, I'd like to find her grave, but I don't know that I'm going to. You know, I, I hope you do, it, and keep me updated, because I'd yeah. love to know how uh-huh. that goes. Yeah, my guess is it's in the Nelson Cemetery in Antlers, where the Nelson's Chapel was, but mm. it's probably unmarked. Yeah. yeah, so many of those unmarked yeah. graves. We definitely have a lot of those yeah. in our family, uh-huh. too. So Wow. And by the way, for our listeners, I'm going to make sure to put some information about these Choctaw ponies and about, um, Uh you'll see some photos of Francine and myself um, in front of her horse, who was, tell me the name again. His name was Red Pine. Red Pine. Yeah. And his name came from Victor Locke, my great-grandfather, came from Tennessee after the Civil War, and they raised thoroughbreds. Okay. And the horse, he is... The story goes lots of ways as to how and why he left Tennessee, (laughs) but he was headed to Mexico. He was not going to re-pledge to the United States. He was a diehard Confederate. Gotcha. (laughs) But he left on one of the thoroughbreds, and his name was Red Pine. Red pine. Red pine. And I love that, like, in the front of your home, you have this beautiful painting of red pine. And that's when you go, my listeners go to my Facebook or Instagram page, Native Chalk Talk. You'll get to see beautiful Uh red pine, and and, uh, we'll keep his memory alive that way, too, in the photo. Mm -hmm. So these ponies truly are rare, right? I mean, how many do you suppose are in existence today? on the, the Livestock Conservancy follows them. And did DNA testing, and they have been following them since the late 70s. Wow. At one time, they were extremely rare. Now, I think there's over 3,000 possibly up to 5,000. That's great. I mean, yeah. that's that's more than I would have thought. And even then, uh-huh. they still are rare as far as yes. numbers go. But do you know how many it started with in the 1970s? Surely there were a lot less then, right? There were, but I don't know how many. Yeah. I don't know the I've seen a number is they were the ones from here were mainly up on Blackjack Mountain and they were running in the area in the mountains. Oh, where, you know? where is Blackjack Mountain? You're right at the base of Blackjack Oh, we are Mountain. right now? Yeah. Okay. Right. I don't know antlers as well, and it is beautiful out yes. here. It's gorgeous, like rolling green fields and trees yeah. everywhere. Okay, so we're at the base of Blackjack Mountain, and these ponies just they uh, And Blackjack Mountain runs east and west. And okay. it's, some people call it, I think, Horse Mountain. It was just a wild yeah. area. It was known for housing outlaws and horses oh, and cool. horses. And in the 50s, a man came in from Texas. He had been born, I think, in Oklahoma, and his name is Gilbert Jones. And he moved up onto the mountain and started tracking and keeping 
nice. numbers, you know, or whatever. And thanks to so him. for many years, a lot of people just went to him if they wanted a horse. Okay. Yeah. And then, so when you uh -huh. decided to, I assume at one point you decided to start procuring these ponies or you started the nonprofit, right? Mm -hmm. And so how did that from day one, what did that look like? It was mainly just to raise funds. And yeah. we um, did a, we, I have a friend who now runs the nonprofit, Myla Coleman. And um, she did, she was wonderful with Facebook and a website. That's great. And then we let people come and see the horses. And if they wanted to buy, we refer them to either to one of the two ranchers that we knew to buy. And they could come and see, they could come meet the people if they wanted. That was mainly how we did it. And we'd pay for the feed at the co-op and then hay, hunt up hay, huh. did that kind of thing. Babe kind of came to me as a gift, and um, and he was born, and I just kind of took to him. Yeah. <laughs> and he was named after one of my great uncles that was a rancher. Died oh, okay. In 1913, yeah. His nickname was Babe. So we just called him Babe. Oh. <laughs> but that's how I acquired him, and then the other ones were my brother's offspring for Scotty. Scotty's descendants are well known out east for doing, I'm not sure about dressage, but they're jumpers oh, and wow. okay. wagons and stuff like that. They perform. Strong. Yeah, <laughs> very strong horses. These are very strong horses. I love that. And so, I mean, that takes me to my next question. What is their physical appearance? Are they shorter or taller than the average horse? Are they built differently? Okay, and I was trying to think. I hadn't thought about it in a while. They <laughs> are tend to be shorter. Okay. Four to four and a half hands high. Okay. They have a narrower chest, and I don't know if this is actually official, but to me, the head is smaller and a very hmm. different shape. It's yeah. just very, once you've seen one and you know the head, you know, and how they look. I never thought, to me, a horse was a horse. Right, and, of course. And, <laughs> yeah, of course. But once I got to know Scotty and his offspring, I could yeah. pick the Scotty offspring out anyway. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, it's funny because you said, I have to think about it for a minute because it's been a while because you were around Choctaw ponies then for so long. Yeah. That you're probably like, what does a regular horse look like at this yeah. point? I don't uh -huh. even know. Yeah, and they have their rump slopes. You can uh -huh. always tell, you know, quarter horses and other horses are very rounded and their yeah. tail is high up on their rump. With the Choctaw, it's not, hmm. and that's where the very long tail that can drag the ground comes in, oh, you know, and some have very long manes. so cool. Yeah, and they just are very alert. Well, yeah, so, I mean, what is their temperament typically like then? They were bred by the Choctaw people to be very gentle. And Isn't that so how the Choctaw people, and yeah. even like their statue, they're a little shorter, Choctaw people are a little, little shorter. shorter. They're like, we need a horse that we can jump onto. Yes. <laughs> people would call them, when I first came, a lot of people called them pot-bellied horses. Oh, so you know? cute. <laughs> and so they were chunkier. <laughs> but um, they part of their history is with the, with the Choctaw people is that once they acquired them, one of the things in the early 1800s they would do with them is they would, when their ch children were too big to ride in the mother's on the mother's back, mm -hmm. they would strap them to the horse. Whoa! That's how the child maneuvered around. I'm serious. I'm serious. Wow. And I can just and I even read once where it was when they were five, 
They were unstrapped. They walked, and they Dang. were expert horsemen. And here but, today we coddle our kids. We're like, don't yeah, go outside. You yeah, might get a splinter yeah. or something. Not then. They didn't then. But they would give a child when it was born two ponies, a mare and a colt, and the same with cattle and the same with hogs. Hmm. And um, so that when by the time they reached adulthood, they had their own herds. So smart. Yeah. We should mm-hmm. do that now. Everybody yeah. gets a pony and uh, a and, hog, a cow. Yeah. <laughs> But that's interesting, though, that they strap, it's like throwing your baby in the swimming pool to teach them how to swim. Yeah. You know, it's like, I'm mm-hmm. strapping you to this horse, and don't you get off until you know how to yeah, ride Yeah, until this you thing. know how to ride this thing. So, and, <laughs> and if you think about it, they were probably maybe at the most a year old. Wow. When they were put on their yeah, It's so young. Yeah. But, I mean, that was part of their culture. And, yeah. I mean, the Choctaw were not nomadic, so they didn't use these horses to you know, yeah. travel around. They use them probably for farming. And, uh-huh. um, and like you said, they, they wanted them to be bred, to be gentle uh-huh. so that even the children could get on them. Yeah. Initially they used them for carrying, they would travel far to hunt. Okay. Like they would come into this area, the cattle area specifically, steel horses. The family would go and the husbands would do the killing of the deer or whatever. And then it was the wife's responsibility to go back, <laughs> I was rereading something where it said <laughs> one of the missionaries had said he would, you know, the hunter would go back to camp and then point oh. to the woman and say, well, it's way down there. <laughs> woman, go get it. Go get it. I hunted, you go get it. Man, yeah. that's why the Choctaw women are strong. <laughs> yes. And see, when horses came along, then it made them more mobile because they could carry the It's amazing. All the tribes benefited so much Uh from the horses coming into their worlds. And and so if we did step back a little bit, the Spaniards originally brought, I guess, most of the horses, but, and then somehow the Choctaw lineage came down from that, right? I mean, the Choctaw pony Uh lineage. The Spaniards, um, Ian Thompson, he has two articles called Like a Deer, the Soba Like a Deer. Okay. And he has said, that they came in the 15, I think it was 1540s with the Spanish. And then the Spanish slowly came north, and then there was the Battle of Mobila, and a lot of horses were lost then. Uh-huh. And the natives that lived in Mobila were all killed, but the Choctaws weren't. Mm, and so they started acquiring horses from that, and then from also the Caddo on hunting trips. And so it was a gradual... Yeah. Movement north with the horses. Wow. And you've shown us some pictures of the horses that used to be here on uh in this area and they're absolutely beautiful. And then even down the street, you said there's still a couple of Choctaw ponies. Yeah, it's someone else. One stallion and two mares. Okay. If everything goes through, there should be in another month or two quite a number of Choctaw horses out there. See, you'll still get to yeah look at Mm -hmm. them and So did you ride the horses when you had them around here? Nice. Yeah, I did some, not a whole lot, but I did ride. Yeah. You know, and they're very comfortable to ride. You know, they're just, to me, for especially a woman my size, I'm about 5'3", they're the right size. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Did you ride bareback or with a saddle? And they have to generally um, have a smaller saddle. Then with higher, they have higher withers than the other horses. They always protected those withers because they oh, were yeah. taller. 
the hard part of the stories that you recently donated your babies to the Choctaw Boarding School Jones Academy, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And which I, my sister and I are heading there uh, later today. But I bet that was a hard and tough decision. But nevertheless, you're, they're in great hands. The kids love tending to them. Getting to see them in person today when we go to Hearts Horn yeah. to Jones Academy is going to be such a pleasure. I'll be sure to take pictures for you. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. But I'll say I'll say hello to them. And by the way, listeners, be sure again to check out my Native Chalk Talk Facebook or Instagram pages to see all of the things that we're talking about and my, my trip later to Jones Academy. So I, I assume you must really miss them. I do miss them, but for a long time, I had known that they needed my perspective coming here was, and my friend who runs the nonprofit now is if you don't make a permanent decision about these horses, yeah. what's going to happen to them? A lot of people take them and release them on the mountain. That's oh. been quarter horses, any kind of horse. You say, well, I can't take care of it, or somebody's dying. I can't believe people away just they go. do that. So for a long time, I had really wanted the Choctaw Nation to have a bunch of the horses, to have some of the horses. And there had been an effort several years ago, a number, oh, about eight years ago, and it fell through. And then when my husband got sick um, in two thousand, late 2018, he was like the pasture manager. He would go out and yeah. brush hog and yeah. do what needed. And he, and he felt very comfortable with uh, horses. But I knew with that we had to hire a young man who became our pasture manager and I knew that now was the time we had to do something. So last yeah. October, uh, one of the horses, there's a kind of pink horse. Oh. Yeah, Buster. Buster. Buster who has his own <laughs> book, even. He has oh, his he own does. book. Yes. That's so cute. Dream a Pony. Because I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I thought, you know, I know who could really use the horses yeah. and has yeah. space for them. They have hundreds of acres out there. Let's see if... Jones Academy will take them. And so Sanders started working on it, and sure enough, Patrick was more than glad. Yeah. And he's a Pawnee himself. Pawnee? Yes, ma'am, Pawnee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and himself, so he knows horses. And so he was more than glad to take the horses. So last October, in the middle of COVID, <laughs> we trekked horses to and from the vets for, we sent eight. Wow. And I'm still thinking of getting my brother to send Scotty. Yeah. Because I know Scotty will be safe there. Absolutely. Yeah. And he'll probably be so glad to be with his, his relatives. <laughs> well, especially the one mayor, because she's his yeah. long time, the one he'd been with the longest. Aww. You know. But we just went to work with it. We got them trekked back and forth from the vet for their Coggins. And then Patrick and the, his two helpers came in. They were both, they're both Octaw, and they came down here and... We loaded, we had the three, the mare and the two, her two offspring did not want to get loaded. They refused, so they did really? not go the first time. <laughs> and they were kind of in horse heaven and they wouldn't, they didn't want to go. So, but we trekked up to Hortshorn and had Which a is also a horse haven. I mean, it's yeah, beautiful it's up there beautiful. too. There's lots of land. Mm-hmm. Well, when we pulled up, we were just like, oh my God. There's nothing wrong with this decision because they had yeah. just baled hay and they had 900 bales of hay. That group of five got dropped off and three were ours. And then a sister had a horse and then Sarah Silver in Oregon. Hers was Buster. And then 
Don Onofrey in Louisiana. Okay. And Palomino. Oh, and then Myla Coleman sent a black mare. Okay. She wow, sent it's... one of her horses. So we had kind of a big group, a little group. I talked to Patrick on the phone the other day and, you know, in preparation for my coming to, to uh-huh. see them at Jones. And he just, he was beaming about it. He said, I knew the minute we started talking about this, that he was like, this is a dream. This is, I uh-huh. knew this was the right thing. It was just a feeling. And I was like, that must make Miss Francine feel a lot better. It really does. I just really, I've been so glad that mm-hmm. it worked out and that he wanted them and the children can have them. And I know I don't have to worry about those Absolutely. Horses. And we can see them anytime we want. Exactly. And our families can come. At, like Sarah's coming in September nice. and bringing her daughter because her daughter had never seen Buster. There's strawberry. That. Now that's a strawberry roan. Oh, so really? when you go okay. there, that's strawberry. a real roan, strawberry roan. He's a real good one. And that book is called Dream, Dream a Pony. Pony. We need our listeners to go out and... Find that book, yes. I assume. It is sold through the Choctaw Nation. Okay, great. And, Perfect. Um, it was really neat. His horse trainer, Billy, sent Sarah, I think, a picture a little while later of the kids sitting around him, and he was reading them with the oh horses. Oh, my gosh. Reading them the story. That's so know? cute. I love so, it. I love yeah. it. I was going to show you a picture of one of my relatives, if I can find it. Um, she's on a white horse. This is a great Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, but I wondered if you thought by any chance that was a Choctaw pony of any sort. If not, she it won't She kind of might be a little bit big. Okay. A yeah. little too big then. Uh-huh. All right. It's a no-go. It's a no-go on that horse, so no worries. Because, see, but, on the Choctaw ponies, they a lot of times their legs are down. Now, this is a group, my great-grandfather's there, but the Livestock Conservancy said that they were chopped up ponies from that that's pre-1910 oh so cool yeah they are smaller aren't they because um the men usually look too big right and we also know that these men already were probably small if they're chopped up right well i know my great-grandfather was he was white but i know he was small okay Yeah, yeah he wasn't a big man Let's see. So I before I shift gears, is there anything else you want our listeners to know about the Choctaw Ponies and any of their history or anything like that? They're hardworking horses. They can do anything from show to herding cattle. They very just, versatile, then. Very versatile, very yeah. gentle. If you get to know them, you know, I we have a friend in Muskogee, outside Muskogee, who has several, and she just goes out and sits in her pasture. Now, I don't recommend it unless you know your horses, and they just come up around her and they're very good if you take your time and understand Mm -hmm. them and Mm -hmm. you know about trust mutual trust trust. Uh uh-huh and just very gentle you know my (laughs) my last thoughts when we talk about the ponies are the fact that they came over on the trail of tears they were survivors just like they were survivors Mm -hmm. tough tough little choctaw ponies yeah well thank you so much for sharing about that and now i want to shift gears a bit and talk about this beautiful land in which your choctaw ponies used to roam um so let's talk about your town a place your choctaw uh, ancestors founded actually i was doing some research and i just kept uncovering different interesting pieces of your history. (laughs) I hope you don't mind. I looked you up. It's supposed that the town of Antlers gained its name from some antlers that were secured to a tree that marked a spring that was uh, nearby. And three Choctaw families settled near the Cuneotuppi Spring. And one of those family members was your great-grandfather, correct? Do you you agree with 
what I have found yes. so far. Okay. I'm not sure about the three families. I know of two. The story we have had handed down is that Judge Parker uh, was approached. They were trying to lay out the land for the railroads, and he asked this Captain John Farr to come into this area to do it, but he told him, he said, the person you need to go see is Victor Locke. They were living here by Dela. Okay. They had what was called Loxton, then White Church, now Dela. That area. Okay. And um, he said, if anybody knows the land, he knows the land, so get him and take him with you. So Victor, John Farr, and Victor's oldest son, Shub, are the ones that came in, and Victor had rheumatoid arthritis, apparently, and he loved the spring. And um, it's still there, but they've closed it up, and there is a movement in town to open it up. Oh, that's, that's but interesting. But for your sake, I wanted to tell you, yeah. you are sitting on John Farr's land. Right now, huh? Yep. yep. Oh, so that's why my my GPS said Farr Lane. Farr Lane, yes. Oh, that's F-A-R-R. Uh-huh. Okay. John Farr. The house across the road yeah. was their original house from over 100 what? years ago. The cabin next door to the north of us, which is being renovated, was the second one, and this is his daughter, granddaughter, um, built this house. No way. Yeah. Wow. So, so we're sitting on very his, historical land. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, that was about 1886, I think, 85 or 86. And Victor, I guess, went home and told his wife and all his kids <laughs> uh, were moving. So they, they had their own little community there. Mm-hmm. With a blacksmith shop and a store and a mill, grist mill. And Sounds they like they did just, pretty well for themselves. They did. Yeah. They did. He was very astute. He started out working for Robert Jones when he came into the territory and mm-hmm. then just went on from there. And And he became extremely popular with the Choctaws and his wife that we were always told she wanted him to be chief, but he couldn't, mm. but his son became chief. one yeah, of his sons. Speaking of, so he was chief, chief of the Choctaw Nation for seven years, starting in 1910, correct? And yeah. what was mm-hmm. his name? Victor Locke Jr. Victor Locke, very original. <laughs> yeah. And of course, your name is Francine Locke is your yeah. um, maiden name, mm-hmm. and then Bray is your married name, correct? Yeah. So that I, Locke name is popular around uh, Yes, well, there were, they had 10 children. Um, not that many are left, but my folks had nine children okay five boys and four girls wow and um my grandfather was victor's younger son edwin snowlock who was known Snow as an interest yeah yeah that's a, a big choctaw name right yeah okay when you said alec before uh in my great aunt's writing she said that mother named the children father gave them nicknames and my grandfather's nickname was alexander hamilton but he was known as alec what? Yeah. Oh my gosh, we just learned a little bit about Oklahoma history. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So he, um, <laughs> and when I first started coming down here on a regular basis, and people would say, well, who are you descended from? Because they knew Victor only had a daughter and she had no children. Victor Jr., I said, from Edwin Snow. And they'd look at me, well, we don't know who that is. And then finally I started saying, Alex. Alec. I would say Alec. Oh, we know who that is. He oh. left. <laughs> so, he still has the name, uh, town he still name. Had the nickname. Yeah. Alex. That's so, really interesting. Yeah. I had no idea. So, you have a lot of roots here. It's just 
Well, and we have our own family cemetery here. So all these people are. He's not buried. My grandfather's buried in Chicago because that's where they ended up. Okay. Yeah. And his sister referred to him as her English brother. His mother died when he was 10 and he was sent to Sacred Heart Mission out by Atoka, okay. Kanawa, and literally spent the next 10 years, minus one. One was spent in Subiaco, in okay. Arkansas. When the school burned in Sacred Heart, they sent him to Subiaco, and he became a monk eventually. He um, gave up the monkdom to become a priest. <laughs> 1912, he sailed for England to become, he was going to Rome to become a priest, but he got waylaid by my grandmother. He what met her do? on the boat, and I don't think he ever made it. We've, for years and years and years, debated whether he ever made it to Rome or not, and I don't think he ever did because of the ship they took back. I have the ship that they sailed on, wow. and they sailed back on the same ship. They were booked to go on the Titanic and miss the Titanic. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So Now, um, that's a story. And they sailed on the next ship, the Mauritania. Back Whoa. to the United States. I wonder what they thought when they heard that news. Yeah, well, it was, it's been very interesting because we have a prayer card and a memorial card, a service, you know, that yeah. the Mauritania did when they sailed over that spot. And so they called him the English. His sister did, she referred. And he was blonde. One of the artifacts I have from him is his boat, but it was a fishing yeah. boat. It was a fishing Ian was able to come out to our house several years ago years ago and um, when we were still in Indiana and identified it as a fishing boat. Huh. There yeah. you go. Yes. Yeah. So I love your, your story. There's just so much. To, I feel like we could probably go another three hours if you didn't have an appointment because <laughs> there's so much to talk about. So yeah. I was reading that in 1887, a post office was established and the St. Agnes Academy, which is different than oh, the Sacred yeah. Heart, right? Uh -huh. And that academy was established for the Choctaws in 1897. And Chief Locke, who is your, is that your great grandpa or your grandpa? No, it's my great uncle. Oh, your great and uncle. That okay. Is one thing where he never, I don't think he ever went there. He would have been too old. And it, yeah, online it says he was the very first uh, He student. was the very first baptized. Baptized. Okay. He was the very okay. first Choctaw baptized. He and Father Ketchum became very close friends. And huh. what I found out recently in doing research on St. Agnes, I've been doing that. And therefore, I got into a lot of Father Ketchum, and I found out that Father Ketchum learned Choctaw, but he wanted to translate the catechism into Choctaw, so it was Victor Locke, Peter Hudson, and a Spring, guy. his last name was Spring, who translated the Catholic catechism into Choctaw. Okay. And I've located a couple of copies. I have yet to see one yet, but uh -huh. I don't know what happened to Victor's copy. But that's 1916 that was done. They were very close, and he was very much loved down here, and he really started the parish. Wow. You know, and there there are some people that are like, oh, you know, there's certain boarding schools or churches that were trying to, you know, kind of colonize, whiten up the, the native yeah. kids. And it, I, I found some very very favorable things about St. Agnes. So yeah. sounds mm -hmm. like it was, um, he we, had a heart for the uh -huh. Choctaw people. We never really have heard, I've not found in anything where people are really, mm -hmm. you know, complaining. And I had a elderly cousin who was 
98 when he died mm -hmm. about five years ago. And he had actually gone to St. Eddie's. Oh, no so way. he would oh. talk about it, yeah. Really? Did he say anything interesting no. about oh, it? Oh, he, he just loved the nuns and loved being wow. there. Okay, yeah. well, there's a real account yeah. for you. Mm -hmm. You know, and you figure that's in the 20s that he was talking. Yeah. So... And there were still some bad things going on then yeah. at that time. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like Jones Academy, too. You'll be hard-pressed to find. No school is going to be perfect, but uh, uh -huh. there's a lot of good accounts from Jones Academy. And that, yeah. of course, was started by a prominent Choctaw man. Uh -huh. So, you know, it, it's a little bit different than, say, the government starting something and hand it, yeah. handing it to, say, a Catholic parish or something mm -hmm. like that. But. Um, in 1945, an Oki tornado came through. I'm sure you and I have both oh. experienced many an Oki tornado. <laughs> and it destroyed the poor school, and they never rebuilt it, it right? Was, so. it, it literally destroyed everything oh. on there. That was. I would love to see pictures of yeah. Antler's Main Street before the tornado. Oof. We have pictures in the depot, the historical society of afterwards, from Fort Mackey when the soldiers came and took pictures. And, but, and they say it was lined with beautiful homes. Oh. You know? And then the church and that whole complex. Just gone. But, yeah, the nuns took the children into an inner hall, and that literally was the only area that wasn't demolished. Wow. Wow, they were spared just, because of those nuns yeah. thinking in the right way. It, in fact, 69 people died from that yeah. tornado, and mm -hmm. it's considered one of the three deadliest in the history of Oklahoma. However, at that time, President Franklin D. Roosevelt died on that same day, so the story was just basically overshadowed by, right. by his news mm -hmm. of his death. Yeah, And yet it was one of the biggest mm -hmm. ones. My great aunt, I have a family of writers behind me, and... She and one of hers talks about if I could survive, I survived the tornado, I can survive anything. Heck yeah. And yeah. that's Oki Strong. And she was wow. a strong woman. So um, that's great. But that was, you still, people talk about that still mm. today. Wow. And what you see downtown isn't what was there at yeah. all before. It's too bad. It just came through, it came through that main street and just everything on. Go to the depot in Antlers, Oklahoma, yeah. and we'll get to see, what is it, photos and Pictures, yeah. old... That's where the Push County Historical Society is housed. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that would be so fun to go see. Yeah. And there's just a lot of stuff there, especially on a Tuesday, Kay Black is there, and she's oh. like the county historian. Oh, nice. Yeah. So today, Antlers has approximately 2,500 residents uh -huh. and is in the beautiful Kaimichi River Valley. And side note, my great-great-grandfather, Tom Davis, who was angered by the Dawes Act of 1887, went on a bloody rampage in the Kaimichi River area, killing a white man. He killed others as well, but this one made the papers as it was so brutal. And he was sentenced to hang, but was pardoned by President Grover Cleveland, so to be in this area is a bit surreal. Oh, yeah. Um, I'd love to uh -huh. figure out where that was. I know I probably never what will. What was the name of the man? It was Lee Crum. C-R-U-M. Oh, I've heard that name. Oh, really? Okay. We should definitely talk. Then, I will because... ask Kay about it. <laughs> okay. Oh, thank you. That, yeah. that would be great because I haven't been able to find anything on Lee because the story, it's so bloody. I don't even want to go into it on uh -huh. here, but... He suffered greatly. And then there's nothing about him or his family or his ancestors or anything that I can find anywhere. So I bet okay. I bet she would know something. And I'm just yeah. talking purely when I Google it. So uh -huh. um, interesting. Have you ever seen a book called Crime and Punishment? Yeah. I'm wondering if there's something in there. 
I will look. And see, this is the thing that people are Mm -hmm. researching on their ancestors about is just to talk. You know, Uh we talk to each other and then sometimes you take away a nugget or I take away a nugget. And so people sometimes ask me, how do you know so much about your family? I'm like, I make a fool out of myself. I go talk to anybody that will listen to me. And then I ask them too, what are you Uh looking for? And tell Uh me about your family. And Well, it has truly been a pleasure to meet the woman behind the beautiful and rare Choctaw Ponies, who truly are alive today because of, you know, partly because of your labor of love and ensuring they continue to carry on in a safe and loving environment for the future. Yokoki, my friend. Yokoki. The Choctaw Nation has always provided a foundation upon which a future can be built. From our home in Southeast Oklahoma to a bingo hall that grew to be one of the largest casinos in the world. Today's summer school programs lay the groundwork for a love of learning. Small business programs support local economies. And with over 10,000 jobs created, Choctaw offers financial stability to tribal members and our neighbors. Together we build success, because together we're more. Thanks for listening to Native Choctaw. Be sure to join our community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Simply search for Native Chalk Talk. That's Native, C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K. And check us out at nativechalktalk.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. You're going to love it. Yakoki. Thank you, my friends.